Thank you, Pastor Doug and worship team for that edifying time. And as we continue in worship, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing in our series in 1 Peter, Excellence in Exile. And I invite you to turn to chapter 4 and follow along as I start our time in the worship of God through the Word in verse 12. I will be reading verses 12 through 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this text of scripture as we look into its meaning today. Help us, guide us into the discernment of your will and help us to see how we can most glorify you through our obedience that comes through faith by your grace alone in Christ. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. I can remember a vacation that happened almost 20 years ago now. I was just finishing up with Bible school and one of my buddies and I, yet unmarried, decided to have a real man road trip. We decided to drive from where we were going to school in South Carolina up to the state of Maine. Um, I can't say that we had had a strong desire before that time to go to Maine, but somewhere along the, the point I had found out that there was a place called Acadia National Park, that it was beautiful right on the coast of the northeastern seaboard. And I just wanted to get there, and my buddy was up for anything. So we hopped in the car, we spent one day in Washington DC, another in New York City, another in Boston, and we were making our way up. By the time we got to Maine, the excitement was building. We stopped at the L.L. Bean warehouse where they had this huge boot, the kind that you know our dads wore, or maybe some of you wore when it rained. All right, so we went in there, looked around, and I thought, we're almost there. And as we went, there were people who were telling us there at the L.L. Bean store, and as we stopped for gas along the way, well, you're, you're heading into quite a storm. And uh, we thought, well, you know, it'll probably just blow over. But our, our, our four-day vacation in a tent up there at Acadia National Park was spent in the pouring rain and a fog that only lifted one time. So... My memories of Acadia National Park and the beauty that was there mostly revolves around 
managing to find a, a crab shack where we, we did get a good lobster and sleeping in a tent with my, my buddy there as well, trying to avoid the rain. And then when we did go out, driving where we could in the fog to try to see something. Now, I want to tell you about how the fog did lift one day and what I saw. There's a mountain there that you can climb. And we actually did start off in the fog to climb it. It's Cadillac Mountain. And we wanted to see what we could see from that mountain of the eastern seaboard to see the ocean. And as we were walking up, the funny thing was we found a family who had gotten lost. And so we were able to direct them back down the mountain. But when we got to the top, the sun had done what the sun does, that ball of fire and burning away that fog so we could see the beauty that we had entered into several days before. Up to that point, we thought all Maine was fog. <laughs> but when we saw the beauty of what God had made, it lifted our spirits and, and we were reminded the fog wasn't everything. Now, I am convinced that here in 21st century America, we Christians tend to live in a fog. And we tend to think that the fog is all there is. And there is this, this environment that we live in that we just accept as normal American Christianity. And it basically is problem-free for the most part. We, we try to do our best to live the way God tells us to. And we just live life. But every once in a while, there is a powerful force that burns away that fog to help us realize that Christianity is not base, menial, boring living, but it's actually the thrilling, exciting, and powerful work of God that the Bible tells us that it is. And as I have read 1 Peter, and particularly here in chapter 4, I see that the powerful force that God uses to lift away that fog of the Christianity that we settle into, the force that he uses to burn it away is suffering. And as a matter of fact, if we are to experience the life, the full life with Jesus Christ that God wills for us, we must realize a main theme here this morning is that Christians must see suffering as God's call on their lives and the necessary path to glory. That theme is most easily seen in chapter 4, verse 19. Look there with me again, just to see. This is, a, this is perhaps the best statement to summarize the whole of 1 Peter chapter 4 and the whole of the book of 1 Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, what is the suffering that we are called to endure in this text of scripture, it is not physical suffering. So I want you to know that. Often, one of the ways that we live in the fog of Christianity here in 21st century America, we're not aware of a lot of suffering for Christ that happens. So when we preach about suffering, what we do know about is physical suffering that a lot of us are going through right now. And we can default to making suffering equal physical suffering. And at times it is. But in this text of scripture, it's not physical suffering. It's actually suffering because you are a Christian. Suffering 
with Jesus Christ, suffering because he is the one who has suffered and calls us to suffer with him. And so I admit that this is not going to be an easy topic for us. I've been living in this text all week. I've been reading biblical stories of those who have suffered for Christ. I have read church history reports of those who suffered with Christ. I've read modern missionary reports of those who have suffered with Christ. And many of them died. And I believe what Peter is doing is preparing his readers for a time when they will face what he calls a fiery trial. A fiery trial. One in particular that is a variation of what he started with in his letter by saying it might be necessary right now that you are experiencing various trials. But there is one in particular that he knows is coming. And it is the one that will cause persecution. And that is the reason for the suffering of the people in this letter. And ultimately it points to glory and something much better than the suffering alone. I want us to prepare well because I believe God wants us to prepare well. And if the fog of our existence is going to burn off, we need to look at a few examples and be reminded in the biblical text what God is calling us to. And so our, t- our points this morning, following along this theme, Christians must see suffering as God's call on their lives and the necessary path to glory. These are our four points. Number one, do not be surprised by suffering. Number two, rejoice in suffering with Christ. Point three, consider your suffering in light of God's judgment. And point four, commit your suffering to God and keep doing good. Now, obviously, there's a lot to get through this morning. And what I would like to do most of all is just commit to this text Stick here as faithfully as I can and go right through. So let's get right into point one. Point one hits us where we are. Do not be surprised by suffering. Peter's writing this, look back at verse 12, to his beloved. These are the people of God. And this is how God regards his people. And what he does by using this term is calling them to focus on how God regards them. Because what might God's people think when they hit trials and suffering, and their lives become a nightmare. They may tend to think God does not love them. But the trials, Peter is going to argue, are the very things that point to God's love in a remarkable way, better than anything else could. Again, that power that burns away the fog of our thinking and of our living. So Peter goes on, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. This fiery trial is something that we hear in the United States, the majority of us have not experienced. But as Peter points to it, I think he is aware of the prophecy that Jesus made about him back in John 21, when he had seen the resurrected Christ on the seashore. And Jesus told him, Peter, when you get old, you're going to be carried away. People are going to lead you in the way that you don't want to go. And we're told that that was signifying Peter's death. Church history reveals that Peter was crucified. And that his option and his choice in the matter was to be crucified upside down. He did not want to be in any way seen to be equal to his Lord. But in the share of the crucifixion, he wanted to experience it and know Christ's suffering. We know this because of what he wrote here in this text. But he is likewise calling his beloved friends and Christian family 
the chosen of the Lord, the people that the Lord regards with his utmost care and will never let go of, that they will be encountering, many of them, a fiery trial that will claim, in many cases, their very lives. So Peter tells them, suffering comes to test you. It comes to test you. Don't be surprised by it. The reason is God is using it. We'll get into this more fully later in the text. For right now, I would just call your attention to this reality. When suffering comes, you are not to be surprised by it, but in faith, you are to recognize that if you suffer because you are a Christian, because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, God is working that out as only God can, according to his will, for your benefit. I'll get into that and how that could be in a moment. Because I'll be honest with you, that seems like a crazy idea. Who wants to suffer? And who would choose suffering as the way to draw closer to the Lord? To every man and woman in here, I'd say that none of us would choose that as our first option. So we've got to have some good reasons why God would do this. And we'll get into those. Secondly, though, suffering is not strange. It's not strange. Peter tells us this in the text. And he says, don't consider this as some strange thing or something strange that were happening to you. That word strange means foreign or alien. And he's basically saying when suffering comes to you, don't regard it as, you know, this can't be happening to me. Or why am I being treated this way? I'm just trying to live for the Lord. Why are people doing this to me? Peter's response to that kind of thinking is to say, well, this is not strange for God's people. This isn't an alien experience. This is actually very normal for the Christian life. So much so that the Apostle Paul, and Peter knew this, when he started new churches early on in his missionary journeys, this is what he would teach them. You can write the reference, Acts 14.22. He would raise up new disciples, and then his message was this. You who have just believed in Jesus, you're loved by him. Now, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I believe that's why Peter tells us in this chapter that we will suffer according to God's will. So, if this is true, how should we respond to this? Point number two tells us that we are to rejoice in suffering with Christ. This is the one that seems impossible. <laughs> I, I would say maybe it, it seems hard to believe. But it's really impossible to fake. If you suffer because people have insulted you because of Jesus Christ and your belief in him, your devotion to him, if you've lost a job because of your connection to Jesus Christ and your overt testimony, if you have in any way been hurt, you know, I think of my life in China. I won't get into this story. It's not a huge long one, but I lost a job in China because of the Christian work that I was doing along with my teammates there. My supervisors found out about it. They decided not to make it a big public matter, but they revoked the contracts that we had to teach at the school we were in and told that we could not come back. I know a little bit of this. I don't know a lot, but I know at least when we are attacked because we're living righteously and we're doing right, 
How are we supposed to rejoice in that? Here's what Peter reminds us of. There are two main blessings that we need to live out and embrace. The first blessing is this, our union with Jesus Christ. Look at the text as he points out this reality. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What are these encouragements from Peter pointing us to remember and to realize? It's this. We share everything with Jesus Christ. We are united with him so that everything he experiences, we experience. And here's the beauty of it. Nothing can separate us from our union with Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not our sin that we might still do in spite of all that we know about him. He will continue to work on us and burn that away because he loves us so much. And not even external threats like the insults, the beatings, the imprisonments, the death that can come because of the persecution without Nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. Some of you know that your strongest relationships with other people result from some of the trials that you both have gone through and come through together. Many of you who have survived cancer here this morning, you know about many others, perhaps in this room, who have also survived cancer. And one of the things that you realize as you look at them is, a little bit more of their experience that I don't understand fully, but you do. And it's given you a glimpse into that other person that you never thought possible. And it was hard, you wouldn't have chosen it. But it's an example for us. As trials and as suffering has the tendency, not in every case, but the majority of the time to draw us closer together with people so the suffering that we experience with Jesus Christ and for him draws us closer to him. The Lord wills this to be so. Now something to point out here is that right previous to this section in 1 Peter 3:18, Peter gave us the greatest summary of what Jesus' sufferings accomplished. Just look back at that for a moment so that you understand what we're called to enter into with Jesus. Verse 18 of chapter 3 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I'll stop my reading right there. The suffering that we are called by God to enter into with Christ is by no means a suffering that adds to our salvation. As a matter of fact, we have it on the authority of God's word that when Christ suffered for our sins, it was once and it was for all time. And our glory is to recognize that we are secure by his work on the cross, that we are his people by his grace alone, and that there is nothing that our experience can do 
to earn us any favor with God. Furthermore, there is nothing that God is doing to us to make us worthy or to, well, I should say it like this, to make us worthy or to say, after you go through this, then you'll really be saved, right? That's nonsense according to the Bible, and it's heretical. What you need to realize is what God is doing through the trials that he wills to bring into your life. He's showing you something that the thousands of years of God's people did not realize until Jesus came. Who was the number one sufferer in the Old Testament? Probably in many of your minds, you would think of Job. Job was a story that took place around or even before the time of Abraham. It's one of the oldest stories that we have in the Bible. And you know what happened towards the end of Job's experience? Did he ever figure out why he suffered as much as he did? He didn't. He knew something. He knew it was God's will. And so you could say he knew that much. I suffered as a righteous man because God willed it to happen. He furthermore knew that God wanted to show him something about himself. God wanted to reveal himself to Job through his suffering. But beyond that, Job didn't have a really good answer to why he suffered as much as he did. But we do. We now know that the answer is revealed in Jesus Christ. The reason for righteous suffering in this world today and what we can rejoice in that we actually know and can experience is that we as God's people, united with Jesus Christ, have the opportunity through any suffering that we experience for Jesus and with him to show the world what he is like. As Jesus suffered and went to the cross and died in the place of sinful people, was buried and then rose again, he calls us to follow in his steps, 1 Peter chapter 2. What does that mean for us? It means that we must reject a gospel that says, now that we are saved, everything in life will be perfect because God has arranged it so that we just pray and get anything that we want to make our lives happy. Now we are called to suffer. Why? Because our Savior walked the path of suffering. And our lives, according to God's will now, are not our own. We do not approach God with demands for how we wish our lives to go. We follow him in the steadfast obedience of Christ, recognizing that as our Savior walked, so we too must walk. And that will result in suffering. For as the world hated our Christ, it will hate us too. Now, I'm often the culprit who hears these truths and tends to shrink back in fear. And one of the things that I recognize is I don't get into situations where I would be tried by suffering because I choose to shrink back from conversations with non-Christian friends. Or I would choose to go an easy route rather than to just, in the open, live out my Christian faith that might cause somebody to make fun of me or might marginalize me and not get me some benefit that I see everyone else getting. 
So what is the encouragement that I need and that perhaps you need to enter into the suffering that God is calling you to? The second blessing that we need to realize this morning is the empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And this blessing communicates to us what we will someday get, all right? So the text tells us to focus and be glad for when the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed. But we are also told that in the present time, when we face suffering and we're put on the spot in a fiery trial, we have a power within us as God's people to answer, to speak, and to give God's word. And to do so, not with fear, but with boldness. Look again at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Sometimes we are tempted to believe that the greatest powerful acts of the Holy Spirit are the signs and wonders that he did in the book of Acts. And we would wish, if we get into trouble, that God would just show up like that. That he would just strike our enemies dead. Or that he would suddenly turn the situation around with some spiritual, natural, supernatural spiritual confusion. And that we would be able to, to get out of the circumstances. Or perhaps like in the time of Peter, if we're in jail, put the jailer to sleep and have an angel come and unlock the door so that we can get out and walk home. But here is what the Holy Spirit power looks like. In the book of Acts, the three examples. In Acts 4, Peter and John, Peter writing this letter, was threatened by the religious rulers who had a, a capital, a monopoly on the spiritual power. They hated Christ. They're the very ones who had put him to death. And now Peter and his buddy John are in the temple. They healed a man. And they gave glory to Christ for that healing. And the religious leaders hated it. And what was the, the response? What was the persecution? What did they suffer? They were threatened. And what did they do? They went out and they prayed with the group of believers. And they gave glory to God. And they didn't ask him to take them away from the threat. But they asked God to give them boldness. And the Holy Spirit filled the people. And what was their response? They went out and preached the gospel openly. Acts chapter 5. Peter and John, again, doing this, were called back into the religious leaders' inner quarters. And what was their response this time? Well, Peter again preached at them. And they were beaten. This time, not threatened, but beaten. And what did they do? They left there being told to never preach about Christ again, yet they went out and rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Christ. In Acts chapter 8, it's the aftermath of the martyrdom of Stephen. And when people at that time could have said, why did Stephen have to be so vitriolic in his message? You, you know the guy. You know, he, he, he looked at the religious leaders of the land, and told them how disgraceful they were and how much they had dishonored God. And I can imagine some people at the time may have thought, couldn't he have been a little softer in his approach? 
Didn't he take into account he's a public leader of our church, and now the rest of us are suffering because of his really forthrightness, if we want to call it that, or thoughtless boldness? Did they act that way? Did the people of the church respond that way? By God's grace, no. They identified with the death of Stephen. They honored him. And although they left into exile, some of the very people that this book was being written to, those people saw that happen and they went out and they preached the gospel. And the church exploded with genuine conversions and growth. And so the saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church is true. As you go into the first century and in the time after these apostles, now to the 21st century, there is tale after tale after tale of true stories of people who had the chance to deny Christ, yet chose instead to affirm their belief in him. And they suffered death as a result. How can we know that when we face these threats, if this happens in the United States, how we could respond? How do we know we will have the power to respond in a way that brings glory to God? Because that's what the text says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God as a Christian. How can we know that we will do that when the time comes? One of the stories of the 20th century that most encourages me is Corey Ten Boom's story. She wrote the book, The Hiding Place. She, along with her father and sister, rescued nearly 800 Jews during the Nazi-occupied Poland territory during World War II. During the course of this, knowing what they were up against and what their future probably held. And she did go to a Nazi prison camp, eventually. Corey was worried about how she would respond in the hour of death, and she had a conversation with her dad. Would she be fearful and, and deny Christ, or would she be faithful to him? Um, her dad must have been a very wise man. If you've read The Hiding Place, there are a couple of examples like this, but this is what she said. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this and answered, why, just before we get on the train. And the father said, exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. And how is it that we can be encouraged that we will be faithful to Jesus Christ? Uh, let me level with you. I love Jesus Christ. But there's a fear in my heart that I will get to a point when for ease of pain that I might experience or for the safety of my loved ones, I will capitulate and do something in order to make it just a little bit easier for everybody. But whenever there's growth in the church and the gospel takes off and runs, it's not because of capitulation, it's because of fearless faith. And I take encouragement from what Corey Ten Boom's father said. And you know what? She experienced all the suffering. Her dad died, her sister died, most of her family members died. 
as a result of their decision to faithfully protect God's people and to worship the one true God, Jesus Christ. So I take heart to know the Holy Spirit who has promised to be my constant companion through this life will give me boldness to do, to act, to speak in a way that brings glory to God. And I leave that thought hanging until we get to the end of this sermon. I do want to give you one warning, as Peter does. Don't suffer as a sinner. Almost as an aside, in verse 15, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. This verse seems almost out of place. Why does he put this here? I'm not going to get into our battle against sin. I would refer you back to Pastor Sam's message last week as he spoke about our, our battle with remaining sin and how to walk out of that graveyard of sin and to live in liberty and freedom. But Peter brings it up here. And first of all, you would know that if you suffer as a murderer or a thief, in this time that was a capital offense, you would be put to death for that. So the theme is kind of the same here. You know, if you suffer for Christ and you're put to death, that's a blessing, that's honorable. But if you murder somebody, or if you're a thief, that's not honorable. So all that to say, Peter is saying, make sure that you suffer for the right thing. And this is a point when you can ask yourself a question. If I am suffering right now, is it because I am glorifying God with my life? Or is it because I'm suffering as a result of my own sinful choices? You need to ask yourself that question. I believe he put meddler at the end of this list. You know, so I mentioned there's murderer. You know, that's taking a life, capital offense. Thievery in this day and age, when Peter wrote this, a capital offense. And then he said evildoer, that's everything else that you could die from because of your evilness. But then he says meddler. It's the only time this word is mentioned in the New Testament. And I wanted to point out what I think he's communicating by this. I could be wrong, but I think I get the sense. Any of these things are things that anybody can do as a result of the intense persecution. Imagine a soldier breaks down your door and kills your family members in front of you and, and takes you away. And at some point in prison, you have the chance to grab a weapon and to kill that very soldier who took the life of your family members. That's understandable, but Peter is saying that's not the path forward for you. But neither is meddling. Meddling is an interesting word because it, it's, it's a Greek word, and it basically means getting into other people's business that's none of your business. Now, why would he highlight this now? I mean, what's the point of it? Well, I believe that marginalized people who are suffering and hurt and in pain tend to do the one thing that they're used to when there is no other recourse and there's no power that they have to stop their oppressors. They, they speak and they have a campaign perhaps to highlight the unrighteousness of their oppressors, to belittle them or to try to marginalize them and speak about, well, my Christian rights are being trampled upon and I have no, there's no reason for me to be suffering this right now. I'm going to encourage you that we have no right to attack or belittle our adversaries. 
And there are adversaries that we have that do not love Christ. And because we love Christ and we love his word and his principles, they don't love us. All that to say, you don't have the right to attack them for their beliefs or to make fun of them for the way that they look, speak, or live. This is maybe most evident by some of our Facebook walls and the photos and the memes that we put up attacking whether it be our boss, a national leader, whoever it might be. I'm calling you to recognize if you are doing the sinful activity of meddling and instead use, whether it be your social media or your life, your testimony, your private words, to edify and point to a greater reality that's coming. What is that greater reality? And point three, I want you to realize something. Our suffering is in light of God's judgment. And I want you to consider how your suffering fits in light of God's judgment. Verse 17 says, it is time. He says, for it is time. That connects right back to his statement. It's, it's a gracious thing. It's a blessing to suffer for the name of Christ. It's not a blessing to suffer as a sinner. You, you have deserved that, or you ought to suffer if you have sinned. But he's saying, for the connection here, it is time for judgment to begin. And it begins at the household of God. What is God doing through our suffering? He is calling the whole world into a judgment that he will bring to fruition at the return of Jesus Christ. But the judgment is beginning now. What is God doing through his judgment? For his household, which I believe is the church, and this has been mentioned before, this is the the true temple. These are the people of God. God's judgment purifies his household. And this is what we need to realize, even through our suffering. It is not to make us more saved, but it is sent to draw us away from this world. Again, to burn away the fog of what we rely on for our satisfaction in this life. And the tendency that we have to think that this world actually is friendly toward God, or at least is living on peaceable terms. When suffering burns away the fog, we see other people suffer for the name of Christ. We remember this friend is, this world is not a friend to God. And it is not a friend to his grace. But we are called to recognize that God is in the process of judging the whole world. I believe Peter had Ezekiel chapter 9. I don't want you to turn there, but I want to set the, the, the setting for you. I believe Peter is thinking back into the Old Testament, his Bible, to know what God has promised and what he was going to do. Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel is having a vision, as he often does. And this vision in particular, God is speaking to those who are to exercise judgment on his people. And God calls the executioners to him and sets with them, one of his appointed ministers. And they are to go out and to slaughter the entire nation. 
But there's one in particular who has to put a mark on the foreheads of those who are weeping over the sins and repentant because of the sins of God's people. And if anyone had that mark on their head, they were spared. But anyone who did not have that mark on his or her head was slaughtered. And God began that judgment in the temple, in the sanctuary, with the very leaders that he had set up to judge his people and to rule over them with love. It's no mystery that the next text in 1 Peter is chapter 5, and Peter addresses the elders. Next week, as we learn more about that, the greatest sins that God will hold into account are the sins of the leaders of the church. And it spreads out from there. But if you are a redeemed person, if you do know Jesus Christ and you mourn over your own sin and over the sins of others, Peter is saying that God's judgment for you is not to punish you. It has never been to punish you. God's judgment, which is the, the ultimate impartiality of God as he stands in judgment of the whole world, he will look to his righteous people who are forgiven in Christ, who have embraced the cross of Jesus Christ as their only means of salvation, and God will pass over in judgment upon them. But as he gets us to that stage, please know, believing friends, that God's purpose in that is to purify us. Any sin that's still left over in our lives, or even through the, pro- the, the, the trials of persecution because we're Christians, every bit of that is not wasted by God, but used to prepare us for our ultimate and joyful life with him forever. This is like being on top of Cadillac Mountain and having the fog burn away and seeing everything the way it's supposed to be. Until then, we're still going to experience some foggy days and we're not going to know everything that God is doing. But we can know this. When we suffer with Christ, the intent of it is that we will both know him better and experience him more fully and show his suffering to the world. Now, for the lost... For the unbelieving world, God's judgment is terrifying. What, the text asks us, will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is an amazing statement here, the gospel of God. And when it says obey, that means come to God on his terms. Repent of sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. What will happen if the world that we know and the very people who might ridicule us, yet we love them, we love them, we don't want them to suffer, what will happen to them? Peter uses a proverb, and he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, this does not mean that Christians are just barely saved, that our, our salvation is in question. Will we be saved or will we not? I don't know. No. That word scarcely is a Greek word, molis, that means with difficulty. It's with difficulty that believing people are ultimately saved. What's the difficulty? Number one, it cost Christ his death. His very life was put on the cross for us. That was not easy and it was not cheap. Likewise for us, 
as our salvation is worked out through the pathways of suffering, it's not easy for us either. But that shows to the watching world that God is serious about sin. And he's deadly serious about his son. So my non-Christian friend, if you are here, I speak on behalf of my, my Christian brothers and sisters here. Beyond a doubt, we wish we were better examples to you of Christian suffering. We wish that our faith in God right now was as unshakable as we believe the Holy Spirit will make it be in the hour when we confess Christ to the point even of our deaths. And yet, my non-Christian friends, the text points to you here this morning that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ now and bow to him now, you will ultimately bow to him after your death, which will result in your condemnation and separation from God and ultimate suffering in the fire that will never be quenched. The fire of God's judgment either, friends, purifies us now or consumes us forever. My non-Christian friend, we don't want you to go there. We believe that our afflictions and our sufferings are light and momentary and are weighing up for us in heaven a weight of glory that we can't imagine right now. It's going to be that good. Will you turn from your sin to Christ? Finally, friends, and briefly, our ultimate response to all that we've read is to commit suffering to God and to keep doing good. This is the fourth and last point. Note verse 19. This is the theme of the whole book of 1 Peter. Let those who suffer according to God's will. We believe that suffering comes to us because God wills it for us. Let them entrust their souls. What does this mean? It's a banking term that essentially means we give over everything valuable that we have to a trusted source. Some of you are trusting in some very unreliable brokerage people right now to manage some of your money. And you know that some of them are trustworthy, some of them not so trustworthy. You're trying to find the ones that you think you can trust the most. And this text of scripture says, and it commands us to entrust over to God everything that we are experiencing. I used the example earlier that, you know, the things that I fear the most, I find it's not death. I don't fear death. But I do fear pain. And I do fear that things might happen to my family. I think of John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. The reason he had time to write that is because he was in jail. And he wasn't there at home to care for his wife and his blind daughter and his many other kids. How could he continue to follow God? I believe he did this very thing. He said, Lord, I trust you with my life. And I commit to you my suffering. I commit to you my fears. I give you everything. And it turns to worship as we realize the one we're praying to is faithful. That encouragement from Peter, trust him and be faithful. He is a faithful God. I'm amazed that we forget this so quickly. Everything that he promises to do for us, he will complete. 
And secondly, God is our creator. Here's another time where a word appears only once in the New Testament. And in this sense, God is not referred to as our creator anywhere else. Not a title like this. You can see it capitalized in the ESV. Why does he choose this and not say, you know, commit your lives and your suffering to a faithful savior? That might make more sense to us. Or a faithful judge. He had just mentioned judgment. And he says a faithful creator. Why? Because the one thing that we can bank on is that the God who created us knows what's best for us. The God who created us knows how much we can take. And that makes suffering a marginal thing in our lives, not the main thing. And it might be the very thing that God does to burn away the fog, even of God's people's unbelief, to help them walk faithfully with him. Yet even that suffering is is just for a season. It's for a time. And God, through that suffering, even through his judgment of the church and of his world, is aiming towards his creative purposes to make everything new again. And that's the hope that I read about in so many Christian martyrs, whether it was the first or second century of this millennia, or whether it was the 21st century as missionaries in the Middle East, in Asia, in Russia, die because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They believed That blessing was just around the corner. And my encouragement to all of you is that as you have opportunity to place your hope far beyond what you might experience right now, do so in great anticipation that you will have the hope of glory and that what you're experiencing now and whether the suffering is of any kind, it is used by God to prepare you for what you cannot imagine in his presence someday, all thanks to Jesus Christ. When he returns, that will be yours. Let's praise him and let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ and how his life makes sense of some of our sufferings. It doesn't give us the complete answers, but we know more than Job. We know that as Jesus Christ came, we can believe and receive the grace to walk with him and to believe in his goodness, to believe in what he has called us to. It is a picture to the world of his sacrifice and suffering. So help us to worship, to look beyond right now and help our main desire to be to glorify Christ and to see him exalted by our life, whether that be in life or even in death. In the name of Christ, I thank you. Amen.